Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing we'll look at is brotherly love. As we go through the next 15 verses tonight, we'll notice that there is a a pattern. There is, first of all, the pattern of brotherly love. Then there is the, the pattern of visible love. And then hidden love. And then finally, abiding love. I have probably had had two of the best brothers in the world. One of them has passed on to be with the Lord. But I have one more remaining, and he's at my house right now. Well, in my early days, uh, eight years old, my dad passed on. I came home. I'll never forget the day. I walked into the house, and I saw those sad, gloomy eyes. And as they ushered me into the living room, they told me, of my father's demise and that he had gone on to be with the Lord. At that point, my two older brothers, which were 12 and 15 years older than me, became very, very important in my life. And I loved them. I mean, the first couple of years in school after my dad died, I had a hard time. And these guys would show up randomly and take me out of school and let me drive the car and buy me ice cream and tell me how cool I was. In fact, the brother that's at my house right now, my brother Don, took me to a Seals and Crofts concert at the age of eight. (laughs) Very cool. You guys don't know who that is? They're they're playing on the the nursing home circuit now, but these guys were really (laughs) pretty amazing back then. But I loved them. They were always there for me. They gave me great encouragement. And they've always stood out as a picture of brotherly love. They wouldn't necessarily let me get away with a lot of stuff. But at the same time, I knew where we stood. And even though we might have quarreled a little bit, hey, man, if someone came against our family, look out. Because you're gonna, you might catch a punch. Which brings me to one of the most interesting events of my childhood. My father was a pastor, very small town in West Texas. And one of the greatest things about our town is that you got to go to church. I mean, that's what the deal was. We had so little to do. I mean, you guys in town, I know, I, I know all you guys, city kids complain to your parents. We got nothing to do. We only go to the mall and all the movies. We've already seen all the movies. Is that right? You get bored in the summertime. Well, anyway. Imagine having three people in your graduating class. Church, school, and going to work were a highlight. I mean, it was an amazing time. But what was interesting is that we would have visiting pastors who would come through and we would have a time of revival every year in our church where we would pray and have dinner on the grounds and eat and pray and preach the gospel message. Well... One of these times, we had a pastor in our home, and my two brothers were at odds with one another. One was 16, the other was 18. And they had been mad for about a week, and it had been building. When all of a sudden, they sort of brushed... I was in the kitchen, by the way. They brushed each other's shoulders, and they were in the small hallway, which connects to their bedroom, which separates them from the kitchen. My father, myself, and the visiting evangelist were sitting at the table in the kitchen. It's going to get good. They brushed shoulders. There was a few 
loud words that were exchanged. And all of a sudden, they come crashing through the wall into the kitchen. My eyes were that big, and they stayed that way for a day and a half. But they got even wider when I saw my dad stand up. My dad, by the way, was an amazing football player, just an all-American athlete, and six foot three, about 250 pounds, and he had this terrible look, sort of like, did any of you guys see King Kong, the movie recently? (laughs) And I never saw him look like that before, but he reached down and grabbed the two of them to pick them up, and as he did so with such force, he pulled the shirts right off of their backs. Now, at that point, the two of them became immediate friends once again because they had a greater fear of this Kong who said, get out of my house. Now, here's the point. You say, Dave, where are you going with this? I don't know. I thought it was a good story. Here's the point. Brothers and sisters and family members may not always agree with one another. But the underlying rule in their life is, is that I have a love and commitment to my family. And in this room, those of you who are believers, and we have brothers and sisters all over the world, and some of them may sing in a different way than we like. Some of them may like to light incense when they go to church. But at the end of it all, we will say, I may not agree with everything my brother or sister does, but I have a love for them that is founded not in my own heart, but it is founded from heaven. Loving the brotherhood is a mark of the true believer. Look at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, that whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're born of the Spirit. Now, that changes a lot of things. Number one, you get forgiven of all the junk that you did in your past, and you get a new start. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You're born, as we were told last week, of this uh, seed of God. It's heavenly seed. It's heavenly DNA. But there's a change in our spirit that happens as well. That is that once we are born of the Spirit of God, our love interests begin to change. Now, I know some of you guys out here are really tough guys. And some of you women out here are very tough women, very strong-willed. And I know that before you came to Christ, some of you said, (laughs) me, love Christians? Are you kidding me? Those are the last people in the world that I ever want to be associated with. They're self-righteous. They go to church. They read the Bible. They're goody two-shoes. I would never find myself with them. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself at the bottom of an altar call or listening to something on the radio. You're giving your life to the Lord. And then you, you find yourself coming and hanging out with these people. There is a new love in your life. A new interest. And it's because God loves these people. Therefore, he has put within us the same love for each other. You'd say, I'd never want to be one of these guys. Well, I met one of those guys early on when I was a a young man working in Red River. I was a painter. I was a nice kid, funny, you know, likable kind of kid, lots of hair. And um, I know I always bring that up, but I probably will 
until the Lord returns. But anyway, <laughs> he looked at me, this guy by the name of Lane Flynn, and he was a construction worker, and he was about 17 to 20 years older than me, and he had the biggest mouth I had ever heard on anyone. And I was a believer, so I would bring my uh, boom box and I would turn it up and, and listen to, to worship music or my Bible on tape. And he inevitably would come around and go, Hey, what are you doing there, little Jesus boy? Good to see you. Hey, tell me about who wrote the Bible. He says, this is the way he talked. This is his voice. Tell me who wrote the Bible. Did Jesus and a couple of his friends get together and say, Hey, let's start some new religion. So they got together over a couple of glasses of wine and some bread and who see what started. And I said, you know, I just listened to him, listened to him, and <laughs> kind of laugh it off. But there were times that I would pull him aside and tell him the gospel. Well, I wondered what would ever happen to this guy. Well, about six years after that period of time, I get a phone call out of nowhere. He had moved out of state. I think he had moved up to Oregon. And he called me. He said, hey, Dave Rao, it's Lane Flynn. Just want you to know... I ask forgiveness for all the hard time I gave you for being a, a Christian because, you know, you never got mad and cussed at me, which really bothered me. Because <laughs> I just figured, you know, you're a weak Christian. Well, you're going to get mad and pick a fight and sooner or later. He said, but it really ate me inside. And so I went to church after I moved, and now I'm a believer. And I just want to tell you I'm sorry, and I love you, and thanks for, for not punching me in the face. But here's the mark of the believer. He couldn't stand me before. And then all of a sudden he gives his life to Christ and he's calling me and saying, hey, buddy, sorry. There's something new. There's some kind of change. And my friends, it's the mark of our people that we love each other. That's the real mark of our people. But notice something. Look at verse. um, I missed it here. Sorry. Look at verse 11. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Now, at this point, you're thinking, Dave, all right, we get the message. This is what we've heard every week from John in this gospel or in his record. But we also have heard that from Jesus Christ himself. And this is why it's repeated. It's something that we have the ability to forget very readily and very quickly. And that's why we're reminded of this all the time. Can you hear the words of your mom in your ears? Eat your vegetables. Why? Because somehow they always wound up on the side of the plate and they were the things that were really good for you, but you needed to be reminded to do that. Hatred is the opposite of brotherly love. Look with me at verse 12 through 15. As you're looking there, I'll tell you a little story. There was a story of two sons, one by the name of Jamie and the other Billy. And Jamie and Billy were in the car with mom. And and mom had told them, look, if you guys are good, I'm going to have a surprise for you. Well, pretty soon they start picking at each other. One's picking at the other one. The other's saying, you don't touch me. I don't want to touch you. I'm not touching you. Mom, he touched me first. And eventually one said to the other, I hate you. And the other kid said, well, I hate you too. And mom looked back in the back seat and she said, look, kids, I am not taking kids who are saying that they hate each other to McDonald's. So silence for a minute. 
the younger one, Jamie, piped in and he said, Billy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that I hate you. And Billy, his older brother, replied, Well, I'm not sorry. I hate you and I'm not hungry. In verse 12 and 15, we have a story of a couple of brothers here. (laughs) Verse 12 said, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one who murdered his brother. And said, Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. I have a little section of a book I found. It's a book of amazing trivia about the Bible and Trivia you wouldn't even care about, but he has some interesting facts here. The most repeated words in the Bible. The first repeated word that is the most used in the Bible is says or saying, and it's used over 6,000 times. And the list kind of goes on with some very simple verbs. But about midway through the list, we have the word love or loves that is used, and it's used 706 times in over 642 verses. The word is interesting to me that is right next to this verse or to this word is kills. The word that is most used right after love is kills or slaying, and it's used 695 times. And in the same passage here, we have the use of the term love liberally for each other as brothers. But in the same breath, we have an example of someone who purposely murdered his brother. Um, I read an FBI report who stated that the six leading causes of death for persons ages 1 to 44 are homicides. It is approximately estimated that there are 18,000 deaths annually in the U.S. because of homicide. And the majority of homicides are committed by persons known to the victim. Second to that are those who are involved romantically with the victim. It's those who are very close, who know them very well, possibly even family members. Keep your finger here in John and turn with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. In this passage... We have the story of a couple of brothers who were sons of very famous parents, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve lived in the most beautiful place known to man at that time was the Garden of Eden. God created Adam. He created Eve. The two were together and they had a great job of naming all the animals. But there was this serpent who was that old serpent, the devil, who had come down to deceive and disrupt the first couple. Well, he did so. He deceived Eve, and then Adam was deceived. And because of this, they were forced out of the garden. Well, something interesting happened. As they had kids, and we see them in verse 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, the reason that she's excited, because in verse 15 of chapter 3, look with me there, you'll read these words of the Lord in a statement to this couple. 
He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the serpent, he said, look, because you have done this to the woman and you have messed up this line of people, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And that is to say that mankind will be in opposition to this serpent. And mankind, there will one who come someday who will bruise, you will bruise his heel, but he will actually crush your head. So early on, she heard this prophecy from the Lord to the serpent that basically said this, one will come from you, the seed of the woman. One will come from mankind who will destroy this stinking snake who deceived us and got us kicked out of the garden. So the first child that was born, she named him Cain, which means I have gotten a man. That's why you read in this passage here, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And there's a sense of jubilance and excitement because she's thinking maybe this guy will be the guy that kills that serpent who get us kicked out of here. Verse 2, then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Abel means a breath or that which is passing away or fading away. In the process of time, it came to pass in verse 3, that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought the first fruits of the flock and the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offerings, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, this is the trouble and this is where it began. This is very important because it sets for us the whole process of this issue of hatred in humanity. Where does it come from? Now, some would say hatred comes from jealousy. Hatred comes from just some inward dislike that grows into bitterness and so forth. But actually, hatred is something that is very seminal and very unique and a part of humanity. Here's the story. Adam and Eve and their sons live very close to God. Can you imagine living in an environment where you would go and make sacrifices and and you would worship to the Lord, much like we do. We come and we don't burn any animals or bring fruit before their altar, Uh, although we may go to barbecue after service and maybe have a bowl of fruit. I don't know, but we don't do like that. We come in and honor the Lord and worship and pray and bow our hearts and so forth. But this was their church. This was their form of worship. And God was right there with them. Well, Abel brought his offering and Cain brought his. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was not. Now, there is debate as to why Abel's was accepted and not Cain. Some say it was because Abel had brought an animal. But it doesn't necessarily make sense because Cain was a tiller of the ground. He wasn't a farm. He wasn't a rancher, so to speak. He was a farmer. He tilled the ground, so he brought his first fruits. But I think the real issue which is shown in this text, is that Abel had a good, honest, soft, loving heart to God himself. 
And Cain had a problem with his attitude deep down inside of him. Notice what happens. God tells him, I didn't accept your offering. And it says immediately that his countenance fell. Now listen to the beautiful, great rebuke that comes from the Lord. Verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Here comes the loving rebuke of God who says, Why are you mad? And why are you angry? Don't you know, in fact, He intimates that he does know that if you do well, your offering is going to be accepted. But there was something inside of Cain that resented God. In fact, I will propose to you that deep inside the heart of Cain was a hatred for God. There was something about him that did not want to bring the offering before the Lord. And I'll tell you the difference. If his heart was soft to God, immediately when the rebuke came from the Lord, he may not have liked it. He may have been upset a little bit, but his immediate response would have been, Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Show me the right way. Please point me in the right direction so that I will be in constant relationship with you. In fact, in the presence of God, he was mad and angry, and God told him what was coming. He said, If you don't do what's right, Sin is waiting at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The word for desire there in the Hebrew gives us the image of a lion that is perched right by a door waiting for prey to come through and grab it and devour it. And he says, sin, this this turning away from God, this wickedness is waiting for you right around the corner and it has a great desire to gobble you up and to destroy you and to devour you, but you should rule over it. And you know what, guys? That's the perfect image of sin. And that is the picture of someone who falls into hatred toward their brother. We look at those who are in hatred toward a friend or someone that they know and you say, what is, what has taken hold of you? Or maybe you would even ask, what has taken hold of me? It is this overwhelming desire for division to, to destroy. That's the real nature of sin. That's the real nature of hatred. But it goes on here. He says, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? There he shows the pure, insolent nature of his rebellion toward God. When asked by God, he didn't say, I'm sorry, Lord, it was a moment of passion. I couldn't stand it. I just, I killed him. In fact, the word that is used here for slew literally means that he cut his brother's throat and his blood spilled upon the ground. It was a premeditated murder. Now, why did he do this? First of all, because his works were evil. 
we're told in Scripture. Also, he was jealous of his brother. And he resisted the commands of God. But it goes on to tell us back in 1 John. Turn back there with me. In verse 12, that Cain was of that wicked one. Meaning that all along he had yielded himself to the tempter to be moved and ordered about by the desires of the temptation of Satan. You see, Satan did not leave completely. He became a stable, influencing tempter, one who is coming against humanity early on. And there he was in the background. Your brother. Hate him. Selfishness is the seed of bitterness. Bitterness is the fuel of hatred. And hatred is the guiding hand of murder. I'll read that again. Selfishness is the seed of bitterness. Bitterness is the fuel of hatred. And hatred is the guiding hand of murder. It all starts somewhere. It all starts with this simple reality that I did not get my way. And someone at some point resisted my will. Someone at some point resisted my will, which creates bitterness, which fuels this anger and hatred, which if left unchecked can lead to a swift hand of murder and destruction to a family member or to a loved one. Look at verse 13 with me in First John 3. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. You ever wonder why the world gives you such a hard time? Maybe they don't fully understand it, but it has its roots somewhere in this relationship of Cain and Abel. Abel's heart was soft toward God to do his will, to be a loving and obedient servant. Cain was in constant rebellion against him. The world holds the believer in contempt. Keep your finger here in 1 John and look with me at the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 18. Very powerful words from our Savior. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they keep my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Just like the world, Cain resisted God. He hated Abel. But there's another character here. Satan did the same thing. He was the first in the rebellion. We are told in Isaiah that he did not like God's glory and desired to be above God setting himself up as head of God. 
He resented somehow the glory and honor that God had for himself. But there's another telling story about him. Just like Cain, Satan over in Job does not understand the relationship between God and those who he loves. The world doesn't understand why we come and do what we do. And we come and worship the Lord and you guys sit on the floor and you pull out your Bibles and when we say turn to John 15, you start flipping the pages and you hear that really cool sound across the auditorium. They don't understand that. They don't understand why now all of a sudden you're a goody two-shoe. You know who didn't understand as well? Satan. In the book of Job, he came before the Lord and the Lord said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless and upright in all his ways. And his response was very sarcastic. He says, does Job serve you for nothing? As if to say, come on, man. He said, you've put a hedge about him. You've caused him to be protected. You've blessed him in every way. But I bet if you touch his finances, if you touch his health, if you touch his life, he will curse you to your face. You see, he didn't understand what the real issue of love was all about. It's something deep abiding in the life of the believer. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. There is an absolute contrast in the love of the believer and the hatred of those who are in spiritual opposition to the Lord. He said, you have heard it said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? As if to say, here's a completely different standard. The world may hate you, but I say something totally different. Love those who persecute you. Love those who don't love you and are in opposition to you. Back to 1 John chapter 3. The one who hates his brother is spiritually dead. Look at verse 14. He says, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. He who does not love his brother abides in death. His hatred for his brother is just like that of the unbeliever's hatred for the Christian. And this is where we get down to family right here. It is not necessary or capable for you and I or or really something that is beneficial For you and I to at ever any point say that we hate someone in the body of Christ. In fact, we know we're supposed to even hate our enemies. So what does he say here? He says that those who do so reveal that they're dead spiritually. They've never been born of the Spirit of Christ. I remember a story I heard from Charles Haddon Spurgeon speaking to a very well-off man who had many properties, speaking to this man, he said, look, you need to know the Lord. You need to come and verify your faith by attending church and serving God. 
And he said these words. After all, I do not hate God. And no one will ever make me believe that I am a sinner. I know that I have done many wicked things. But after all, I have a good heart and I do not hate God. Well, some months later, down by his very prosperous flour mill near a river, there was a huge flood and it began to overflow the banks and the people of the town began to come out and look at his flour mill to see if it would actually collapse. And there he was in the middle of the scene in front of the whole town screaming curses and hatred toward God because God was going to allow this natural disaster to sweep away his mill, his livelihood. And I love what Spurgeon says. He says, by his own words, he may have earlier stated that I don't hate God, but later on, as he publicly displayed his hatred for God, it was something that was not new, but it was revealed what was already there and what had been there from the beginning. It only needed an opportunity to express itself. All right, enough of hatred. Let's move on to verse 16. Visible love. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart up from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Visible love, first of all, and by the way, this is how we know how to love, is seeing it. It's by example. Visible love, first of all, in verse 16, is self-sacrificing. I love what David Livingston said. He said, We have no right to speak of sacrifice when we think of the one who left heaven, came down and died on a cross and suffered for our own personal sins. This love that is self-sacrificing is a love that hurts. You know, when you really care about somebody, you give till it hurts. When you really want to help somebody or your heart goes out to them in their time of greatest need, you find yourself doing things that go far beyond anything you would ever do for anyone else. And you would gladly sacrifice on their behalf because of your deep abiding love for them. It's love on behalf of others. In verse 17, we see that this visible love is not only self-sacrificing, but it's very practical. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I love this word that had been said. It's a great quote. He said, Tell me how much you know of the suffering of your fellow men, and I will tell you how much you have loved them. Liberality consists less in giving much than in giving at the right time. You know, you can give and give and give, but when you give at the right time, if you give somebody a sandwich when they're, ab- when they're absolutely famished, you've given something at the right time. When a buddy or a friend comes over and says, man, the back of my car just blew out and I have to get to work. If I don't get to work, my family is going to suffer, will be out of work and will be homeless. And you come along as a brother and you say, hey, I can help you right now. Gifts that are given at the right time are gifts that are perfect and precise in the hand of God. 
But here's a response that should not be a part of the believer's life. I don't know if you know this. But someone comes along and they say, hey, I have a need and I'm destitute. Can you help me out? And they for sure are a brother. Let me tell you the response that will not do. Uh, Hey, hey, bro, love you, but sorry, dude, I can't help you out. That is not going to cut it in the body of Christ. Now, this is not an open invitation for Moochers Monthly or whatever uh, magazine you may subscribe to. I, in my early 20s, um, had a subscription for a number of years, and it worked. It was really helpful with a lot of members of my family, finding meals and so forth. But there's a difference between need and want. And the believer is trying to discern what the real need for this person is. I love the way that the church responded to Katrina, that disastrous hurricane that hit the Gulf Coast in New Orleans. You know, it was stated early on in the first couple of hours and on into the first week that the church responded in mass. I mean, just a flood of resources, love, and hands-on help to those who are suffering. And that is the real heart of a believing world. That's what we do. That's just who we are. Look at verse 18. It's not only self-sacrificing, but it's authentic. He says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's an old saying, that people may doubt what you say, but they will always believe what you and I do. They may doubt what we say, but they're always going to believe what you're doing. It's right before them. They understand it. People know if you're telling the truth or if you're just putting on a show. And by the way, kids are the best at it. One of the most revealing moments I've had in the past few years as I come in from work, was very tired, and I was trying to smile for my youngest child. And um, he asked me, Dad, are you okay? Dad, are you okay? And I said, sure, I'm fine, son. Why do you ask? And so he comes back later and he says, oh, I know, Dad, you're just pretending. (laughs) People really know when you're authentic or not, there's real tangible evidence. All right, look with me at verse 19. Not only is it an obvious love and it's able to be seen, but it's There's a hidden love that is revealed in this chapter. Verse 19, By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. This hidden love inside of us reveals the nature of our relationship to God and our hearts with Him. You may have public activity and you may do a lot of great things and you may support disaster relief and you may give money to the poor, but all of that actually starts in a very small hidden place in the heart and mind of the believer. That's where it all begins. And this relationship that we have with him that is proved by various activities, notice what it says here, shall assure our hearts before him. The word here for assure means to pacify or to win with confidence and soothe 
the alarm in our hearts. It's easy to trust the Lord with His pacifying truth of knowing that we are in Him and we have confidence before Him. You know, you may have confidence for a lot of people, but it's hard to have confidence sometimes before the living God in your heart because He sees everything about you. Look at verse 20. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. This hidden love gives us confidence in His character and His ability. Even if your heart condemns you, even if you get freaked out and you honestly think one day, I'm not a Christian anymore. I've done some things that are not very good. I've actually said that I hated my brethren, but I I asked for forgiveness. Even if our heart condemns us, this faithful and true, believable God is there for us. A few things you can note here. You can trust God. Why? Because God knows everything. Long before He'd offered His own forgiveness to you, He knew what you would do. And He knows everything that you're going to do up until the time of your death and beyond. God knows every single thing. He knows the bad stuff. He knows the good stuff. He knows if your heart is trying hard to be true. He knows if you're faking it. That's what God knows. You know, sometimes the accuser will come to you. Friends will come to you and say, you're not a very good Christian. How could you say those things? Or how could you do those things? And inside you're ripped apart because you say, hey, come on, man, I'm trying. But they don't care. They don't see what's inside. You know, the world may see your imperfections. The world may see the the things that cause you to stumble. But I'll tell you what, God sees everything. He not only sees the faults, but He sees that heart inside of you that's saying, I want to serve you. And even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and my heart. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This hidden love is revealed in a pure heart that passionately and confidently pursues God. And this has to do with our confession. We've been given the bar of soap. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. A heart that is confessed up and clean is ready to spend time with God. If you're convicted of a sin and you immediately go to God and you ask for forgiveness, do you have anything to hold back at that point? Is there anything hidden from God? No. It is a life that is open and passionate to Him saying, convict me of my sin. Show me where I've blown it because I want to spend every moment with you and I don't want to be encumbered by anything in this world or anything that I can produce in myself. And so for the brother, for the believer, for the one who has that hidden love in his heart, he is in the constant process of revealing and asking for forgiveness and moving on to into a passionate, vital relationship with God. Confess your sins. Tell the truth. And this hidden love allows us to pursue the Lord. Verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This hidden love changes us so that His commandments become our personal request. There's been a lot of discussion about this passage. 
And a lot of people, believers, good in intention, who have read this passage and walked away depressed and said, how come God doesn't answer my prayer? I've asked him, I've asked him, I've asked him. And this passage there, we have what we ask. I spend time with him, I abide with him, and I ask for things and he doesn't give it to me. Well, that is the request and that is the echo of a small child who wants everything. My small child wants everything. He wants my car. He wants the stuff he sees on television. He wants, wants, wants. In fact, tomorrow is his birthday. And every day he comes to me and he whispers in the morning, Hey, Dad, now remember, you know what I wanted. And I just wanted to remind you that my birthday is coming up tomorrow morning. Hey, Dad. And I'm like, Son, I'm not going to give you a bazooka. Now, he can get mad. You don't give me a bazooka. You don't love me, Dad. Well, I'm smarter than he is. But as he grows, as he matures, as he becomes an adult as I am, the things that I value and the things that I hold dear become a part of his life And the the fabric of who he is and his desires match very closely my desires because we value the same things. And because of experience, he's come to know what to ask for and what not to ask for. That's all that it means. Our requests become a part of what God is already commanding. All right, look with me at verse twenty. Three and 24 and we'll wrap this up it's not only a visible love or a hidden love it is an abiding love and this is the commandment that we should love believe on the, his name of his son jesus christ and love one another as he gave us commandment this abiding love is expressed in daily obeying the commandments of the lord now what are the commandments very simple and you've heard them from the beginning Love or believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and love one another. Believe is faith and trust. Here's his commandment. Trust me. Do any of you like to have a relationship with someone that doesn't trust you? Hey, why don't you get in the car with me? I I don't trust you. I'm not going anywhere with you. I've seen how you drive. Well, why don't you come over for dinner? Oh, no, I've seen how you eat. Well, do you call me friend? Oh, of course, we're best friends. Well, why don't you come over? Uh, you know, I don't know. I've, I've, I've walked in your house. I, the structural integrity of this place is not very sound. I mean, you've you, you got to do something about this. At some point, you said, hey, sorry, you know, keep your friendship. If you don't trust me, we really don't have a relationship. Believe is trusting in God and saying, okay, God, I'll do what you say. I'll believe what you tell me to do. I will, I will not resist you. I will actuate your commands in my life and I'll try to live as much as I can the way that you want me to. I'll trust you. Not only will I trust you, but I'll love your people and I'll be nice <laughs> to my family and I'll take care of them. I'll believe and I'll trust. And here's the results in verse 24. Now he who keeps his commands abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us 
by the Spirit whom He has given us. The result is we are able to keep His commands by His power and we abide and have a dwelling, confident relationship with the living God. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.